Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 114th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. You first heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 111, and episode 82, also featuring fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a BA in History from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. If you listen to the last four episodes, you heard us talk about the first two seasons of The Wire. On this episode, we'll be discussing up through episode four of season three. So consider this your blanket spoiler alert. And now on to the show. Hello. Hey, yeah. Hey, what's up, Bob? Oh, nothing much. You still up for talking? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's Friday night. Why not? <laughs> Sweet. So yeah, how's yeah. how's uh, Korea this Friday night? Oh, it's hot outside. They said it, today was the hottest day of the year. Mm. Yeah, uh, hot weather. Mm-hmm. For sure. Oh, oh, I ate some dog meat soup on Wednesday. Oh, no. How was it? (laughs) No, it was okay. Meat was a little slimy, though. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. uh, Yeah, Ash will be thrilled to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I told you guys years ago, you guys ought to come out to Korea. And you, you said, well, but Ash has the dog. And I said... Well, I tell you what, <laughs> I said something like, you get a head start on Korean culture, and you still get to come out here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but you've, uh, you've tried this before, though, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, a couple times. Yeah. But you've always said it's kind of like not good meat, right? Well, it's, I mean, I don't know. The meat could be good, I feel like. It's sort of like beef, I guess. Hmm. Um, This time we got it without the skin and the bones and stuff, thank goodness. But there was still like, you know, I don't know, I guess you could say a lot of marbling or something or a lot of like (laughs) kind of like fat parts or slimy parts that were in there that I was like cutting off with the chopsticks and stuff. But it's a soup, so it's kind of a slow process and everything. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a Korean tradition to eat dog meat soup on hot days, Hmm. especially the hottest days of summer. The dog days, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't my plan to eat this, but um, I've got a woman in one of my classes who's nice lady, um, and I helped her out with some stuff that she was getting ready to do, kind of an international thing for her church or something Mm -hmm. last month, and uh, she appreciated it because it went well, I guess, and stuff, so she wanted to take me out to the dog meat shop because she heard I'd eaten it before, and so we did and stuff, so I got to... I got a free meal out of the thing and stuff, so. Mm-hmm. Yep, I don't know, just uh, over here living the life, appreciating the culture, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's been a rough couple of weeks in America, it looks like, with this thing with the uh, 
breaking up the families and all this stuff with the immigration stuff. Disgusting. Oh, yeah. And now they're, like, saying the military bases has to have to be prepared to, like, take, like, thousands of people now, too. And so, I don't know. And, you know, the, all the people who aren't paying attention are going to think it's fixed, and it's not in the slightest. So, it's it's ongoing. I mean, they're not going to do anything to fix the people they already broke up, and then I'm sure they'll find some loopholes or whatever to keep doing it. So... Yeah, well, I think I've read some things, I've seen some things on Facebook that say that there's quite a bit of, like, you know, kind of backdoor stuff in the in the executive order that Trump signed, which is um, supposedly undoing all this mess. But, uh, and I did, I did read something like 50 families have been reunited so far, 500 or something, I forget how many it was, some multiple of five, but... Um, but again, you know, we don't know the names of people who are separated. We don't know, you know, who is separated, where they are. We don't have, the public doesn't have these figures. As far as I know, the news media doesn't have it. So mm-hmm. there's no, you know, real accountability. I mean, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. we, they could put none of them back together and tell us they're all back together. And uh, I don't know. It'd be, it'd be a job for a reporter to find out if that weren't the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's disgusting. You know, I saw that scumbag Jeff Sessions on TV the other day saying, like, um, you know, they said, well, some people say this is like the Nazis. And he said, well, you know, the difference is, and it's like when you when you have to start a sentence like that, the difference between what we're doing and what the Nazis were doing, like you're already on a pretty, you know, yeah. you're, you're already losing the argument in a way or you're, you're already oh, yeah. kind of admitting some massive, massive uh, defect of morality or something. <laughs> But he's like, but the the Nazis wanted to keep them in, and we're trying to get them out. Like, you know, when, which you know, I'm paraphrasing. You can you can drop the sound in there, right? But um, but Democrats have launched a blitz accusing the Trump administration of separating children from their parents and housing them in literally concentration camps along the border. Leftist politicians, uh, from senators to Hillary Clinton, took their best shots. It is unacceptable in my mind, I think in the minds and hearts of any American, that someone can justify a policy of deliberate harm to children as a way to gain legislative leverage. In fact, what he's doing is holding these kids and their parents hostage to a whole set of other immigration issues. Separating families is not mandated by law at all. That is an outright lie. And it's incumbent on all of us, journalists and citizens alike, to call it just that. Okay, well, she should know something about lying, right? With emotions running this hot. So is this a PR battle the administration can win? Let's discuss all this with the head of the Justice Department. We are pleased to welcome Attorney General Jeff Sessions. First time on the Ingram Angle. Uh, General Sessions, thank you so much for being with us. There's a lot to get to tonight. But you heard what Mrs. Clinton said that, that this is a lie, this is not caused by the Obama administration, this doesn't have to be done, the president could pick up the phone tonight and stop this policy of separating children from their parents. What's the real truth there, General Sessions? Well, I guess what she's saying is the president could just issue a directive that everybody that enters the country unlawfully be released into the country and never be apprehended or stopped or prosecuted for the illegal entry. We, we have watched what happened with the uh, uh, Obama policies and over the years we went from 15,000 illegal entries to 75,000. 
This is a huge loophole in our system that's uh, attracting more and more people as more and more people understand that under the previous policies, if they were entered the country unlawfully, nothing ever happened. We're doing the right thing. We're taking care of these children. They are not being abused. The Health and Human Services holds them in good conditions. They work hard at it. We spent a billion dollars last year, Health and Human Services did, in taking care of children who've entered the country unlawfully. And Laura, one more thing, the vast majority of those children still uh, tend to be the unaccompanied minors, but we've had a big surge in families bringing children or some adults bringing children with them. Yeah, one of the uh, shelters not too far from the border has 90% of the kids were unaccompanied minors, 10% were separated from their families. Just so my viewers understand this, General Sessions, what happens when a family unit, you see them all on the bridges, which I, I, I think is just absurd, that they just stay on the bridges near the ports of entry near San Diego. Now, when they get processed in, and it's slow, they get processed in, and it's a woman says, this is my child or two children, then what happens? Are they separated if they claim asylum? Say, I want to claim asylum. What happens to the mother and the children at that point? If they enter the country at a port of entry, uh, and there are many of those along the border, they are not violating the law. The mother or father in that cir circumstance would not be prosecuted, and the families are stay together. Uh, they can, they, they're presumably, they're claiming an asylum, and that's, they would not be prosecuted and not be separated. But if they go out in the desert, they cross a fence or a barrier, uh, our officers have to uh, identify them, follow them, apprehend them. Uh, they're violating the law, and they need to be prosecuted for that. Uh, we simply cannot condone that kind of activity. We want to end this process of children being brought across dangerous territory, placing those children at risk. If they want to claim asylum, let them go through the port of entry. That's the way it should be done. Yeah, I think most people aren't understanding this. I think most people think that if you come even through one of the, what, 25 ports of entry, you could you have your family separated. That's not how it's working. It's a rare circumstance when I think the Border Patrol people know that that's, this person is not related to this other person, and they can figure it out pretty quickly in those circumstances. But I just think it was important to uh, have the people understand that. This is how your opponents, uh, General Sessions, are demagoguing <clears throat> this issue. Let's listen. I walked down that railroad siding where the families were separated, and that's why I used that picture. Now, look, I, I, I know we're not Nazi Germany, all right? But there is a commonality there. This is the United States of Germ United States of America. It isn't Nazi Germany, and there's a difference. And we don't take children from their parents until now. Nazi Germany, concentration camps. Human rights violations, Laura Bush has weighed in, Michelle Obama, Rosalind Carter, got all the first ladies going back to Eleanor Roosevelt. She's apparently weighed in as well. Uh, General Sessions, uh, what's, what's going on here? Well, it's a real exaggeration. Of course, in Nazi Germany, they were keeping the Jews from leaving the country. Uh, but this is a serious matter. 
We need to think it through, be rational and thoughtful about it. We want to allow asylum for people who qualify for it, but people who want economic migration for their personal financial benefit and what they think is their family's benefit is not, uh, uh, not a basis for a claim of asylum. But they can make that uh, claim. We will process it and uh, review the situation and make a decision. Those children, uh, if the parent brings them across the border in an unlawful area uh, and the parent is deported, they will take the children home with them. That is true. Uh, if uh, the parent claims asylum and is allowed to stay here, then the children stay here also and be kept in uh, health and human services uh, custody. Yeah. General Sessions, um, is this policy in part used as a deterrent? Is it, are you trying to deter people from bringing children or minors across this dangerous journey? Is that part of what the separation is about? Fundamentally, we are enforcing the law. If you in, break into the country in an unlawful... But is it a deterrent, a, sir? Well, it Are you does considering that, this a deterrent? I see that the fact that no one was being prosecuted for this as a factor in a five-fold increase in four years in this kind of illegal immigration. So, yes, uh, hopefully people will get the message and come through the border at the port of entry and not break, break across the border yeah. unlawfully. Uh, and let me get your quick thoughts, uh, sir, if you would, on this looming showdown with congressional investigators. They're trying to get those documents, as you know, from your department. And Trey Gowdy, oversight chair, he said yesterday that officials will be held in contempt of Congress if the DOJ and FBI do not comply with the subpoenas. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we've gone a long way in dealing with that. Uh, the FBI has worked hard on it, I think. Uh, an agreement was signed with Mr. Gowdy and Chairman Goodlatte, both chairmen, uh, to have 12 of their staffers at the Department of Justice, at the FBI, looking at these records. And so I think that's uh, moving along pretty well. Uh, hopefully there's but they're, no But they're out of patience. Uh, General Sessions, I hate to interrupt you. They're out of patience. They feel like they've been asking for these documents. Some of these documents end up showing up with the IG report that the that Congress asked for months and months and months ago. So you can't, I mean, you were in Congress. You know what it's like to try to do oversight. It's really frustrating. And well, you they're, right they're going to hold uh, Rosenstein in contempt. I mean, they're going to hold him in contempt of Congress. Then what? Well, we are going, we have a responsibility to respond to Congress. We intend to be responsive to Congress. If uh, we're running behind in production, we'll take efforts to step it up. And the, uh, we have a responsibility to uh, produce the documents that are properly disclosable. And we intend to do so. That's my direction to the department. Senator, Senator Sessions, Attorney General Sessions, uh, just one more question. Are you involved at all in, in discussions about a possible recusal of Rod Rosenstein from overseeing Mueller, given the fact that he did sign one of those FISA warrants? It's a big, you know, <laughs> it's a big controversy in this case. Uh, I am not involved in that. He is the uh, acting attorney general for that matter, and he has to make his own decision as I had to make my decision. Got it. Got it. General Sessions, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. Such important issues at the border. We really appreciate it. The, the stupid fucking thing is, and the thing that, you know, I've been saying for years is, it doesn't start with the final solution. There's a reason it was called the final solution. And when he said that, I thought, 
my mind went immediately to the Madagascar plan, which was, mm-hmm. you know, before, you know, the Nazis were looking really hard at trying to deport all the Jews out of Europe, basically. Mm-hmm. And they looked at, I think they looked briefly at Israel. They looked at Madagascar. They sent some people down there to check it out. And they determined that they could only, like, accommodate, like, 5,000 families on Madagascar or something. So they, anyway, they didn't, you know, I think it's pretty controversial within the history community you know, to what degree this was actually seriously ever considered, but it was mm-hmm. something that, they, but, you know, I think the same thing could be said by, about Trump with this thing. Mm-hmm. It's very questionable how much he actually considered what breaking up families and putting, you know, toddlers in toddler camps and, you know, all this stuff would actually look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think, you know, the thing that scares me is, you know, all that animosity is still there. All that anti-foreigner, anti-immigrant stuff, anti-brown people stuff is still out there. And now that this solution has not worked, you know, Republicans aren't just going to give up on, you know, getting these people out or, you know, making America an inhospitable place for these people. So, you you know, your, your mind naturally goes to, like the Nazis, what's the next step? Mm-hmm. Because... You know, and so so Jeff Sessions was wrong. I mean, Jeff Sessions doesn't know any history that probably, you know, aside from like the life story of Jefferson Davis, probably or something like that. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you could probably, probably quote that to you chapter and verse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, clearly he, you know, and it's just like you know, it's just so frustrating to see these people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. You know, everybody agrees that the Nazis were bad. You know. Mostly in America these days. But people don't really know what the Nazis did, why they did it, how they did it, what they're, you know, and, and so they're just like, well, I, you know, it's just, you know, it's like the, I listened to your Sarah Kinzier mm-hmm. episode the other day, and, you know, she's somebody who gets it. Mm-hmm. She's a smart person. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she, she has been, you know, sounding the alarm on this stuff too. And I, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated her perspective on it again. And, but yeah, it's just frustrating to see people who don't know history talking about history on the news, mm-hmm. misunderstanding history. You know, the people who say that this is not like Nazi Germany in the 1930s are people who think that, you know, 1933, Auschwitz was already up and running. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> no, that doesn't come for another like, you know, eight to 10 years or so. At least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, especially like people like her that have studied authoritarian uh, states you know, around the world, you know, they can see the parallels before even we can. And we've kind of got this blindness that would, you know, it can't happen here. And, you know, this is, we're different and all this. And, you know, it's like, it's just, you, you know, you just make the steps along the way and, and you'll eventually get there. So, well, I've, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I, I don't have any post undergrad degrees in it, but I've studied, you know, Mm-hmm. Authoritarian regimes around the world too, and I've been, I've been, I've been sounding the alarm on this thing since before he was elected too. I think mm-hmm. pretty, you know, let the record show. Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is, you know, this is a disgusting thing. You know, whatever happens after, you know, if he gets in, if he gets impeached, if he gets, you know, uh, if he loses the next election, or if something happens before then. You know, this is still another disgraceful, disgusting chapter of America's history that is uh, need not have been written this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, South Korea, South Korea has taken in—I don't know how many thousands of Yemeni refugees uh, from the war in Yemen, which you know, 
whatever the hell's going on there. Most mm-hmm. people don't even know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not even sure what America's doing Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they've had some people because they have a visa waiver program or something. So a lot of Yemenis have been coming to the island of Jejudo. There have been some, you know, racial misinformation campaigns about, you know. Oh, I heard that if these Muslim men are out, you know, they, that women can get molested or beat up or something anywhere on the island of Jejudo and stuff. And so they, they rushed a, you know, they did a uh, petition to the Moon Jae-in, President Moon Jae-in's office or something to make some action on this and prohibit these people from being here. And they did it. Hmm. And so they basically kind of banned refugees from Yemen here. Wow. And, and you know, the thing is, like, I can't even hardly say anything to the Koreans because, you know, our own country's so fucked up right now. We're, mm-hmm. we're doing what we're doing with refugees. And right. it's just like, it's just an ugly moment in the world. And it's kind of like a, you know, it's, it's a thing where, you know, you don't expect conservatives or right-wingers to have much compassion for anybody unless, like, they're running from communism, maybe. <laughs> but, uh... But or they're Christians running from something. They they seem to Christian refugees. They're they're into that sometimes. Although a lot of these Hispanic yeah, people are Christians, though, so I don't really know if that even holds. So, yeah, probably a lot of Catholics. Not yeah, to, not to generalize, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, but but the thing is, like, you know, I like I like Sam Harris a lot, but I think the difficulty with him is. And, you know, it's a difficulty that I, you know, wrestle with, too, is that there are, you know, largely Ill- illiberal aspects of the modern Islam uh, and, you know, the role of women, et cetera, and stuff like that. And there was that thing that happened in Germany or didn't happen or whatever the hell happened there a couple new years ago mm-hmm. where there was like mass uh, molestation or something in the streets or something. Mm-hmm. Um and I heard a lot of back and forth on that, whether that was confirmed or whether that was kind of fear-mongering or, you know, what exactly happened there. I'm not even really sure anymore. But, mm-hmm. you know, stories like that and stuff like that. And, and, you know, people like Sam Harris, who I largely agree with on most things, but I think he's got a little bit of a, you know, he's got a special, I don't know, I think we've talked about it before, but I just think he goes a little bit far on the Islam thing. I, I don't think he factors in sometimes. Uh, modern historical factors with that religion in particular in their region, basically. Yeah. Uh, the Middle East, which is not, you know, the entirety of the Muslim world, but uh, anyways. Um, but the thing is, because of, and he, he, and he is liberal on a lot of things and stuff, and so he claims himself to be a liberal and stuff, and so, but when we've got liberals basically saying, oh, what about the women? You know, when, when our cultural relativism conflicts with our modern feminism and stuff, which, you know, that it, it, it creates the situation where liberals are no longer compassionate for war refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and conservatives, of course, are not going to pick up the slack and be com- compassionate. And so you've got, you know, an entire society basically kicking people out, mm-hmm. rightly or wrongly. And it's, you know, I don't know if there is a cultural education program you can do with refugees, but something that says, hey, look here, here's here's problems we've seen in other places. Uh, we're not going to tolerate it here. Mm-hmm. You know, we are taking you in because, you know, your situation's fucked up in your own country. But this is stuff that we will not tolerate, and you will be out of this country. You'll be sent right back to the country you're from. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know how you have that, you know, that kind of a moment with them, you know. Well, I think the quickest way to get people to assimilate, essentially, is what you're talking about, is to not then ghettoize them or put them in a stigmatized state where they're cut off from the rest of society, which is basically what the conservative view is. But I, I do get what you're saying because the the impulse is to defend the uh, you know the minority in this case, but the sometimes the minorities aren't always doing the, like in the places where they are the majority, they aren't doing the most liberal things. So it's it's kind of a difficult scenario because then it's flipped on its head. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a messed up thing, messed up messed up situation in the modern whoops messed up situation in the modern world. I guess mm-hmm. sorry, something fell out of my refrigerator. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, so, anyways, yeah, that's kind of a brief rundown on that, my thoughts on that, I I just, I don't think we can, you know, do anything if we don't mention, you know, what's been going on, this is a huge thing, obviously, so, and it's disgusting, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Trump's, thank God, Trump and all his supporters' lies have not held the day here, carried the day or whatever, Mm -hmm. oh, it's the Democrats' fault, you know, it's so clear that he's just angling, to get this funding from for his border wall that he couldn't get from Mexico, right. and he's not going to get from the Democrats. No, they damn well better hold the line on that. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, Chuck Schumer and and uh, Nancy Pelosi looked like they were about to give him the store there in negotiations, you know, a year ago or whatever. But yeah. Uh, but, and, and, you know, the thing is the Republicans aren't giving it to him either, you know, mm-hmm. and so, because they could probably give him the wall if they wanted to, but they're not, you know, for whatever reason. So maybe they would say they need 60 votes in the Senate, which they don't have, but you know, you're never going to get more votes than you've got right now, Republicans, unless we <laughs> become something other than a democracy. So mm-hmm. some people would argue, of course, that we're already there, but you know, I don't know. We'll see in 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I guess, going to be the key. It's really like they always say it's the most important election of your lifetime, and I think this may be the one time that they are correct. So, <laughs> well, I, I think twenty sixteen might have been one of those elections, although there was a lot of fuckery going on in twenty sixteen sure. as far as yeah, it's you know, you know, the Democrats have got to wake the fuck up too on these things. If this is the this is the biggest election of our lifetimes as far as if America is going to be a d- democracy or a fascist uh, kleptocracy, whatever you want to call it, theocracy, dictatorship, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want, mob state, <laughs> whatever you want to say, then you, you, you don't run Hillary Clinton. You run the best fucking candidate who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump or whoever the Republican nominee might be. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you run the person who's got the most favorables, who has the least negatives. You don't say, oh, well, you know, well, they haven't even called him a socialist yet, and when they do that, it's all going to be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like... Well, you sound like you have somebody in mind. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Joe Biden? <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I tell you what. Uh, what's his name? Was robbed. Who was that guy, third place guy? Bernie? No, third place. Third place. Oh, God. Well, what was his name? I can't even remember the dude's name. Gary Johnson? <laughs> no, no, not the libertarian. I'm talking about the Democrat. Third place Democrat. Martin O'Malley? Yeah, yeah. Martin O'Malley was <laughs> robbed, yo. <laughs> there's, a, there, there's a very small uh, Martin O'Malley constituency out there that appreciates the shout out, I'm sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, we would have been like a Northern European utopia if he'd won, but damn. I know, right? <laughs> the DNC just couldn't stand it, man. They knew that that momentum he had. <laughs> yeah, he, he never even saw Hillary coming. <laughs> exactly. So, anyways, yeah, it's a, you know, it's 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 one thing. Like if we if this is the election of our lifetime, then you know, the, our side has got to put up somebody that we can all get behind. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like you can't. Oh well, this this person feels like it's her turn. Uh, she she didn't do it last time. She wants to do it this time. You know, I don't know. Whatever. I'll I'll lay off the Hillary hate here. Not hate, <laughs> but just exasperation, utter exasperation with her. Well, I mean, this is what the Republicans found out that this it's my turn thing is is over. I mean, Trump basically destroyed that, and you know, it was supposed to be Jeb with the exclamation mark in the end. Um, he was the he was the anointed one, uh, and then low energy. You know. <laughs> yep. You're kicking me out. You're kicking me out. <laughs> Please clap. <laughs> yep. Oh, Jeb. Uh, the dynasty's got to be over. Oh, I know. Although I, w- I would take a Jeb Bush in a heartbeat right now. <laughs> the Bushes, man. You know, like even I mean the compassionate conservatism. Whatever happened to that? You know, mm-hmm. like I mean it was kind of bullshit when it came to the prosecution of the wars and human rights and you know civil rights as far as not not being uh, spied on and so forth and <laughs> torture and all that stuff that went on. But it, I mean, the Bushes, I never got the Latino hate vibe from them quite as much as most Republicans, I guess. Yeah. I mean, well, they've also got a pretty strong connection to the Hispanic community. I mean, Jeb Bush's wife is, yeah. Yeah. yeah and then they have uh, their, their son who's somehow a Trump supporter, the, land auditor in Texas, George P. Bush. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, they, they've, they've got more of a connection, and they're from, you know, and George W. Bush tried to speak Spanish, if ever so, clunkily. <laughs> so. Do you think that the federal government should pay the states for the education of undocumented children? Yes, I, yes, I believe that. Yeah, I do. Because it's the federal government's job to enforce the border, and they haven't done a very good job of doing that. I also believe in my state we ought to educate Todos los niños. Yeah, yeah that guy was a, he was a clown. But <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you got to be you know you got to be charismatic. You got to be an entertainer these days. You know you got to be able to hold the crowd's attention. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I think this this faux gravitas that you know people like Hillary and Barack Obama as well try to affect in their speeches and stuff. It's just not working anymore. I think rightly. I mean, I think, you know, it's a bunch of, you know, I don't know. I don't know who it, I, I guess it's, I don't know who it's supposed to appeal to. What are you People talking about? Like platitudes and stuff something. or like, yeah. Yeah. When they go low, we go high, you know, America's at our best, but we've been at our worst or something, you know, we're going to do better. You know, yes, we can. I mean, yes, we can obviously was a rallying cry, but you know, just like, yeah. You know, and you can put it at the end of any other statement. So it worked, but just kind of like the, the speeches that are just like, you know, I know the, the America I know is a good America. It's like, uh, okay, <laughs> no, that's nice. But <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind of this like, just optimistic blather that, you know, doesn't really mean, okay, so what do you, you know, Bernie Sanders will go out there and talk about policy and about things that we could make better and how we could improve things in a concrete way. 
And then you've got people like Hillary and Bernie talk, or Hillary and Obama talking about like, I don't know, just vague things, I guess. Mm-hmm. Esoteric things, values. I mean, I guess, I don't know, whatever, whatever. 2016 happened. Here we are. No need to relitigate it, I suppose. <laughs> but if they fucking again in 2020, uh, I might vote for Trump my damn self. <laughs> Might get the red hat on and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, that'll never happen. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> the Democrats need to tread very carefully in the next election, mm-hmm. next presidential election. So, yep. It, anyways, um, the wire. Yeah. So, I am almost caught up with you. I've. I'm about. Uh, let's see here. I'm about ten minutes into the fourth episode of the third season, which you said is pretty much where you're at, too. Yeah, I think we're pretty much... I don't even know if I finished that uh, episode out, and I think I may still have a few minutes left, so we may actually be pretty close to exactly where each other are, so I'll start I'll start watching again. I kind of slowed down. I think I only watched like two episodes since the last time we talked, but yeah. yeah okay. Well, it's good you slowed down, because it took me... Like, season two was a little bit of a speed bump, but I got through it there, and I mm-hmm. picked up the pace as it went on. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, what what we talked about last time was was, was there more stuff that you wanted to talk about with season two? Because I feel no, like I, f- I feel like we covered it pretty well. I mean, was there anything that you jumped out at you now that you did finally watch it again that you wanted to touch on? Or I should probably take notes while I'm watching this because there were two or three moments that jumped out at me, but I didn't take notes at them in the moment, and then mm-hmm. it, it all kind of you know, there's just so much stuff going on in the show. Such a good show. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you had talked about the, uh, the closing montage of season two with the, uh, mm-hmm. what was it? What was the song you said? Like, uh, I feel thing? all right. Yeah. By, uh, right. Steve Earl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. The song was okay. I, I, I can hear the song now that you mention it. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, the song didn't mean much to me. I, I'm not familiar with it per se, but, um, it was a, it was a good montage. I thought, I mean, like, you know, this guy, mm-hmm. Nikki Serbaka, uh, Nico Sabaka is, uh, he's, you know, those last two or three episodes, just things went to shit. Like, right. Like, um, mm-hmm. uh, Ziggy shoots, uh, double G or whatever the, the, the basically the fence for the, the Greek organization mm-hmm. because the guy tries to screw him over some bullshit where he stole a few cars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I have a hard time even blaming double G or whatever. <laughs> uh, Glicus, I think was his name. And, mm-hmm. You know, because because Ziggy was just being so obnoxious about everything. He's like, "Oh, I'll get you any kind of cars you want, but they got to have sunroofs. It's part of my plan." And he's like, <laughs> "It's just like I don't care how you get these things. Just you know, this is this is a t- this is a small time thing, you know." Yeah, I don't know. It, it was and it, it was Ziggy's you know last ditch attempt to get some respect out of this whole criminal or enterprise, and basically to have his own plan, have his own idea, have his own heist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it it didn't work. And when he finally didn't get that res- respect, he yeah. Yeah, I don't really get the whole, I mean, I guess he was desperate and he was just trying to save his son, but I really don't think that Frank Sabatko should have been so trusting of the Greeks that they were going to, like, somehow get the one surviving witness to lie, and it's like, I seriously doubt that in the Ziggy nearly double murder case that he's being prosecuted for, that the one hole in the the theory is that this this guy's going to talk. I'm sure there's, like, a million other things he did to, like, leave, 
you know what I mean? Like that, you know, that it was it was his gun. It wasn't self defense. You just went in there and blasted these guys, and like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think the the one thing with the witness is going to be the thing that flips it on its head. It's like I'm sure they've got the records for the gun. I'm sure they've got other things that prove what actually happened. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I I guess I understand. He's a father. He's trying to do something for his son, but I don't know. There's a lot of other holes in in the, in the story. So yeah, well, it's I I think he was. I think we have to remember that this all played out in just a couple of days, basically. Sure. Like, yeah. You know, and he's going through a whirlwind because he realizes that he's been brought in. He's been shown the case against him and his union and stuff, and mm-hmm. he realizes they're pretty screwed. Um, he realizes his son has, you know, been doing things behind his back that he didn't know about, and is definitely going to go to jail for a long time. Mm-hmm. And now the the police are offering him a little bit of a leeway. And then the Greeks are also going to offer him a little bit of leeway, mm-hmm. right? And he, you know, I guess he just wanted to investigate both of his options before he went with one. But he obviously probably should have just gone with the police on that one, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, it was really tragic and stuff. And, you know, and then he gets killed. And, of course, because they got that call. I mean, what did you think about the fact that, you know, these guys were basically they were doing something more important for the federal government and they had people running them, agents running them out of like San Francisco or something who were basically feeding them information about who was talking about them and stuff like this as they were happening. Yeah, that, I didn't really get that whole line. I mean, I guess I understood that they were with, was that also person person also Greek that was in the FBI office too then or? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I'm kind of blanking on that right now if he was Greek too, or but I think anyways, he had been involved with them somehow out on the West Coast somewhere and had, they had helped them in the post 9-11 situation with as far as, you know, maybe they had, well, I mean, obviously he got the big drug bust, right? He was the guy who came out there to pick up the, the can that had all the paint, the blue paint blocks in it, mm-hmm. and they couldn't find the drugs, and then he scraped some of the paint off, and they found that it was all cocaine, basically, mm-hmm. or something. And so and so he got a huge drug bust there, and I maybe I imagine they might have done something with terrorists or something, like mm-hmm. in the past. Maybe there was terrorists trying to bring something in, and they flipped those people over to him or something. But obviously they were, you know, uh, considered valuable enough to the federal government that, you know, uh, murdering witnesses and stuff like that going on in in a local city of Baltimore, there was not uh, not a concern. So, mm-hmm. and so I yeah, I just felt like you know when Nick is you know he realizes he's got his he's got his girlfriend, he's got his his child, and he's living in a hotel with witness protection agents or something protecting him, security guarding him and stuff, and he tries to go down to the union hall to get it get some work that day and. Uh, and they don't have any work for him, and he's just kind of walking in the rain, and he's just thinking about all the stuff that's happened in the last 48 hours, and that song's playing, and you just see all these different parts of Baltimore and stuff, and you see, mm-hmm. like, you know, girls getting off another another uh, crate somewhere else and stuff, and mm-hmm. just all the, all the stuff that's going on in the city that is going to continue and stuff. It mm-hmm. was, uh, it was a sobering moment, I thought, at the end of the season there. Very much so. You know, and it was it was Nikki's moment too. It was like it was totally it was these are things that he's thinking about and stuff. So Yeah. It was a great wrap up, I thought. Definitely. Yeah. Um Yeah. And I, I think I might have let slip that the uh what was his name? 
the 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 guy directly below the Greek. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, what's his name? Also a Greek guy, as far as we could tell. Yeah, with a hat. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I might have mentioned that he was gay or something in the last episode or something. And there was that scene where um, the Greek told him, like, uh, he, he's kind of like pleading not not to hurt the Sabatkas. He's like, let's let's let's, let's let him go. Nikki's not going to say anything. He's like, oh, you're sweet on the boy or something. He's like, he's like, he could have been. He said, you should have had a son. He's like, but then I would have to have a wife or something. He's like, yeah. they laugh or something. I was like. Did, I, I thought that meant that he was gay, right? And they both knew that or something. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. That didn't occur to me in the moment, but yeah, I mean, if I guess you look at it that way, yeah, sure. I mean, they didn't come right out and say whether or not he was, I guess, but I don't know. I just thought it meant yeah. more like he was just like, oh, me have a have a wife. Oh, what a I'm a play I'm a player. I'm a I'm a lone, I'm a loner. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we didn't we didn't see that side of him. If he true. Was, but. True. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm misreading it, but he he definitely had a real soft spot for Nick and Mm -hmm. so forth and stuff. So I I thought it was funny when the, when the, uh, the, the Ukrainian or the Russian guy or whatever that they, the kind of the, the muscle guy for them was in the witness room and stuff or in the, in the interrogation room rather. And, uh, they said, what's your name? He's not saying a word. And they say, okay, Boris, then <laughs> we're going to call you Boris for now. He's like, oh, Boris, Boris. Why is it always Boris? <laughs> yeah. <like> that <laughs> yeah. That was, that was kind of funny. Um, yeah. I mean, how did you feel? I mean, like, how did you feel about the, I mean, cause looking back on the murder from the very beginning, like the second episode or something, the guy who tried to jump ship in Philadelphia, and these guys caught him and they, you know, tortured him and mm-hmm. naked and he gave them the information and then they killed him anyways. They cut his throat and like it was all cold blooded as hell and everything. Mm-hmm. And then we find out that this, this is the guy basically who killed all the women in the can at the beginning of the, ep- of the season. Right. And so that was kind of like a man. I actually don't feel much sympathy for that dude at all. No, definitely not. Even though that was a pretty cold blooded scene. So, Yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah. And so, and we see that, you know, these are basically the guys who are supplying Proposition Joe and the East Side Baltimore gang. Well, that was another thing I was going to ask is that, you know, that's how in season two, Prop Joe was able to get supplied even when Stringer Bell can't find anybody to deal with them because the people in New York are cutting them off or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But what? how did the drugs get in in season three? Do we know yet? Or... Well, I think I think it's probably pretty much just like the Greek guy said. God, I wish I knew that dude's name right now. Um, the guy under the Greek, basically, the other Greek guy. He said, you know, this week, there's not going to be anything this week. There's no shipment this week. But next week, we're going to put you in touch with some other people or something. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, you know, continue from there. And I have a feeling, I mean, those, those Greek guys were so, you know, they were all business all the time. And I have no, no doubt that they were able to fulfill the, on that promise basically. So mm-hmm. yeah, I imagine that's pretty uninterrupted. So, right. Spiros. Spiros. Yeah. Yeah. Him. <laughs> Thanks Google. I kind of like that Greek song they played too, at the part where they were mm. leading up to the murder. Of yeah. 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 I like that one too. Actually. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. I don't even know what that song was, but it would fit really well in that scene. I, yeah, I, I 
I shazam I shazammed it and it was uh, it had two words were the same ones like the same word was repeated twice was the name of the song it mm-hmm. looked like it was pretty old it looked like it was like a 40s or 50s song or something but it was, mm-hmm. a, it was a good song again I can hear the song in my head right now even though I haven't watched the episode for a couple nights right right but it, yeah it really gave it a real Greek flavor there this kind of you know and you want to appreciate the culture but at the same time you're dealing with the you know the, the bloody cleanup of a violent crew mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like wow yeah exactly again HBO HBO does it again They a lot of their shows have just outstanding I mean The Sopranos was you know the music was amazing mm-hmm. most of the time yeah Almost pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so, and I think the, the the interesting thing is that the way they pepper in some of the characters are going to come later. Like, for instance, I didn't mention it, but, like, the, the gangster that uh, Ziggy owed money to who came and, like, stole his car and, you know, didn't didn't want his coat and everything. Oh, jeez. Was actually... Yeah. Cheese, cheese. I think Wagstaff or Flagstaff. I want to say Wagstaff, but um, and that's you know Proposition Joe's nephew or whatever and stuff. And now we see Cheese, you know, a lot more clearly in the season three coming up and everything. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you want to start talking about season three a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got the uh, Sabatka crew broken up. The storyline's pretty much concluded. Now we're back to uh, kind of focusing on the Barksdale crew. Um, sort of feel like our portal into this is uh, Cuddy. Because um, obviously Cuddy's getting yeah. out uh, at the same time as season starts. And he was, I guess, was he like with the Barksdale people before he went in, I guess? Or... I think so. I okay. think he was probably some of their muscle, and and you know from what we learn, from what little we learn about his past, he was a pretty cold blooded guy. Sure, he probably definitely deserved to go to prison. Yeah, uh, but he's you know, yeah, he's a he's a he's kind of a I don't know kind of a cipher. He's kind of a blank slate coming out now and stuff. But I think he. I don't know, you know, I, I haven't known many people after they've come back from jail or anything for long stints in jail where they're kind of in a transitional period or anything, but it's, his acting strikes me as about right. Yep. I, I don't know exactly, but it, it strikes me as like, this is, this is a, this is probably a lot like what it's like for some people. Well, I mean, the one thing I was going to mention is that one scene where he's trying to get the lawnmower started. I thought that was a really good mm-hmm. scene uh, where he's talking to that guy and he's like, look, there ain't no big reward to it. You just, your back's going to hurt. The pay sucks. You're going to ride in the back of a truck every day. <laughs> this is your life now. Is this what you want? Because that's what it's going to be. There's, you're not going to, you know, I used to have this, like, what will you talking about his car he used to have and stuff and like, um so it's like there what there is a way for him to you know live his life not this way i guess he could keep living in his mother's basement and punching the punching bag and doing this job for indefinite period of time but you know i think he's he knows that the life is calling him and well that was my question though so okay so the guy hooked him up with with the work right at the beginning mm-hmm. and then he just randomly yeah. found that guy and just said hey here's the drugs and then later i'll get the money okay and whoa wait a second you don't have the money <laughs> like why didn't he um you know take that to someone he knew i mean obviously he knows some of the people in the barksdale crew why didn't he just take that to the barksdale crew yeah i i don't i don't know i think he's 
I think right now he's very ambivalent about how much he wants to. I, I don't think you know he didn't work the package himself. He no, that that was part else. of the reason it got you know ripped off because he just gave it over to someone else. But what is that guy's name? That yeah. one guy that pointed the gun and walk it off. Was that guy? Yeah, I can't remember his name actually right now. But he's uh, under Marlow, right? Yeah, that I think that seems to be the case. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think because is he the same guy who? Marlowe said, like, your your money's going down right now or something. And mm-hmm. he's like, well, you know, it's those Barksdale guys. They're cutting them off at the street. All the, all, the, all the drug addicts that usually come to us, they're cutting them off and stuff. He's like, well, you know, when I used to run a shop, he said, if, if my numbers were down, I did something about it. He's basically telling him, you know, run them off. Get them off the street. If do whatever you got to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same guy. I think yeah, so. it was. That's, you know. I thought so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, we'll get to this later, but then, uh, what is it, the bunny trying to move people to the one block or whatever, and the, I think he's also in that scene where he's like, you think we're stupid or something, or, you know, like, like he's, he's talking back to the cops or whatever. I think that is also the same guy there. Huh, okay. Well, I haven't finished this episode, so oh, sorry. Yeah. I haven't. But, um, you know, yeah. What else was I going to say? About yeah, that? it's, uh, yeah. you know, I think Cuddy is definitely a person to watch. And, you know, and Bunny, too. I mean, you know, obviously, I think Bunny is one of the main drivers of the action in this season, as well as uh, Carchetti, mm-hmm. Tommy Carchetti, who's, a, you know, an interesting figure as well. Um, but, yeah, Cuddy, I mean, the, the scene where he, he goes back and he tries to hunt down his old girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. You know, and he goes to her sister and her sister's not doing so well. And she gives him, well, she's working at this middle school. She's a teacher. And she's like, she's not for us anymore. She's not for people like us anymore. She's out in the county. She doesn't care about us in the city here now. Mm-hmm. And then he, he goes up and he sees her and then he goes home and, you know, does the punching bag and puts on a, puts on a double breasted suit and goes back up there to meet her. And mm-hmm. she, you know, She's a little dismissive of him, definitely. But mm-hmm. she gives him a number for a job or something. So yeah, yeah. That, but that, I mean, that whole scene where he's, you know, he's looking at this picture of this girl that he used to know, and then he sees her in real life, and he goes up to her and stuff. That was it. Was a you know, it was an emotional scene. He says like he says, looking at you, it hurts or something. She's like, mm-hmm. well, don't look then or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's cold. Yeah, yeah. I also really like the scene, uh, I don't know if you've gotten to it, is at the end of uh, maybe episode three, possibly, when he's with uh, Bodie and, and all those guys having that party. Is that say, episode three? That That's probably episode four, but I know what you're talking about, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, that's basically him. It's like, yep, he's all the way back in. Like, when he when the, like, two women, like, shut the door and, like, he's been drinking and, and smoking, you know, and the whole, like, whole nine and, you know, and uh, the woman with the one leg. And, you know, that was kind of like, she was almost like a siren from another world, like, <laughs> drawing him back into the into the life or whatever. So I thought that was kind of a, a cinematic way to, to show the larger uh, extent to which he's not going to go walk the straight and narrow path here. So Yeah, there's a woman with one leg. I thought that's what they said. I thought huh. that it was like a woman with like a peg leg or something that was in the house. Uh, okay. she, maybe like a prostitute I, I've or something. The, I've watched the season twice and I don't remember that, but I, I'm, well, I don't think they show her having one leg. I think just like Bodie says, you know, there's that, you know, what with the one leg. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I could be wrong. I, well, I swear. I, I looked like she was limping up to him. I, I maybe watched that scene again, but it was, yeah. She almost seemed like a mythical creature just because of that. You know, it was just this little, like, affectation she was in. And I don't know, just the way it was filmed, it was very, like, cinematic, so. Yeah. Well, Cuddy is a, Cuddy is a very complex character, I'll say. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but I will say he's probably one of my mom's favorite characters from the show. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, I just, just believe that he's going to have, you know, he's going to have an arc. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, you know, it just just watch for that and stuff. So, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, yeah, that he's... You know, he's he's looking at a job that's not going to go anywhere. He's looking at an ex-girlfriend who has moved on and doesn't want to have anything to do with him and is pawning him off to the church or something. Hmm. And, you know, and then he's got he's got the drug gang that he can still get with and stuff. And, you know, that's going to be a possibly a different way for his life to go. So, mm-hmm. and again, he was, he was, uh, he was in the TV show, the walking dead. Mm-hmm. And he was, his presence in that show elevated things. And then they mm-hmm. killed him off. And yep. I mean, you know, he had the same bullshit lines that everybody else on the show has, but it was, yeah, I was just, I was curious to see this, this actor who I've seen do such good things. And the thing with the, the walking dead is I think they appreciate good actors. They recognize good actors when they see them, but they just don't know how to properly utilize them. And so it's just maddening. It's very frustrating, but like, you know, um, you know, D'Angelo Barksdale was on the show too, and he was good. Um, I didn't really ever fully understand his character. He was kind of like a, good guy but he was wrestling with alcoholism or something and then he got ate by zombies anyway and so you know mm-hmm. what does it all even mean what's the point <laughs> so you know all the all, all the, the questions uh, you usually yeah. ask when you're watching the walking dead <laughs> yeah yeah you know uh yeah they want it to be asked by design but actually it's more of a kind of like what are you doing mm-hmm. <laughs> what's wrong with your show why can't you write good? Why can't you make these good actors act good? This is bad. You should make it good. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's you know. That's that's my uh, critical take on yeah. the Dead, basically. Nuanced uh, take, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah, so yeah, so anyways, Cuddy's definitely somebody to watch. Um Marlo. Now, you know, we've seen bits and pieces of Marlo here. Yep. What do you, what do you, you said, I think you said you think he's, he's kind of like a sociopath. Seems that way, yeah. You know. I mean, he's got kind of those, it's all in the eyes, Chai. You remember this. <laughs> it's all in the eyes. Yep. <laughs> yep. He's, well, spoiler alert, he's a sociopath. Oh, okay. Let me just, <laughs> not so. And he's he's gonna have an arc too, but um, <laughs> I don't think I'm spoiling too much to say yet. Marlo Marlo Black is a is a stone cold dead eyed sociopath, mm-hmm. and um, you know we're gonna learn a little bit about him in this season, and in the fourth season, we're gonna you know I I don't, I'm not gonna give anything away, but we're gonna meet some of the people who work for him at the beginning of the fourth season. It's gonna be blood curdling it's going to be bone chilling mm-hmm. uh I, I one of the characters i think uh uh stephen king said was the most horrifying character he'd ever experienced have we seen this person yet not yet not yet okay but when when you see them at the beginning of the fourth season you'll know who i'm talking about i'm pretty sure mm. 
So, I mean, Marlo is a gosh, I, I got to stop talking about Marlo, but like we've, we've seen bits and pieces of him, but he's, you know, right now all he's doing is he's basically bucking the, the, the Barksdale, you know, offer for everybody to get on uh, the prop Joe's package and stuff and start selling that, those drugs and stuff and just, you know, maintain the peace. And he's like, he's kind of more like an Avon character. He's like, no, I want to hold my territory. I want to hold my corners here. And, you know, you're not going to run me off and I'm not going to buy into your package. And, and, uh, you know, um, okay. What about, uh, what about, uh, uh, uh what about, uh, Omar? Omar stuff going on right now. Uh, Omar. Uh, what is he doing again? Remind me. <laughs> uh, well, he's, he, well, it's pretty complicated, but yeah, the stringer had been making the deal with, uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. With brothers, with, this is after he shot brother Mazone and then yeah, actually what, what happened after that? I don't know. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. So, all right. So, Avon could feel that Stringer was going to make this. He wanted to make this deal with uh, with Prop Joe, mm-hmm. but Avon wanted to hold his corners, and so he, you know, went to New York and got this brother and his own guy to come down and be muscle and just chase off mm-hmm. anybody from the east side who was on the west side, basically. And Brother Muzon was doing that, and he shot Cheese Wagstaff in the shoulder with, like, birdshot or something. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm trying to remember if that was the end of last season or beginning of this season. But but then um, Stringer, is like, he's like, he thinks he's going to kill two birds with one stone, so he goes and he has a meet with, uh, with uh, Omar. And he says, Omar, you know, uh, actually, our guys, yeah, we were going to kill your friend Brandon last se- in the first season, but um, we, were, we weren't actually the ones who did all the fucked up torturing stuff. It was this, mm-hmm. this Muslim guy from New York City, Brother Muzon. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who went crazy and everything and stuff. And, and Omar just like, he stopped thinking at that point and just got emotional. I was like, where he at? And he's like, okay, I'll tell you and stuff. And he's like, okay. And so, you know, Omar scopes him out. And, you know, knocks out his bodyguard on the front door who was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not really up to the job in, in many respects. He couldn't find the Nation magazine for Brother Muzone. Yeah, that was, that was the last straw for him. <laughs> he was so uh, mad at him. Like, I like, like, I read The Atlantic and The uh, the Nation and uh, the other thing. He's like, you know what the most dangerous thing in America is? He's like, what? He's like, a brother with a library card. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, Harper's was the other magazine i believe harper okay yeah, yeah. harper's Na- the nation the atlantic and i'm like, you know when i'm watching this i'm like i read the atlantic that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> me and brother with the zone just like this man <laughs> yeah yeah we could have a we could have a real heart to heart yeah but um but so so you know um omar dispatches with his bodyguard at the front door kicks in the door shoots the guy or he knocks on the door door opens and he shoots the guy immediately in the belly and um, and he and the other guy, he's like, he's about to execute him, and he's like, "Why'd you do that shit to Brandon?" He's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." And he's like, "Well, you're gonna die anyways." And he's like, "Well, that's fine. I'm okay with my God." Mm-hmm. And Omar's like, "Wait a minute, this guy doesn't seem like the type of dude who's gonna, you know." Well, I know. Well, what he said was that he's like, "Oh, you're just lying to save your life," and he's like, "No, you you can think whatever you want." And so, like, I think he knew, like, well, like then that Stringer had, you know, because I'm I'm sure he thought. Maybe Stringer was giving him bad information anyway, but maybe that kind of cemented it. You know what I mean? 
So yeah, I mean for Stringer, it's a win-win. If Omar kills Brother Mazone, then he keeps dealing and mm-hmm. he keeps his deal with Prop Joe, no problem. If if uh, Brother Mazone kills Omar, then he's got that you know this guy who's been gunning for him and calling him out on the street, taken care of basically. Yep. And uh, but Omar didn't finish him. He called the police. He called nine one one and said, "Hey, this guy's been shot here. Come get him." Mm-hmm. And uh, and so Omar, at that point switched it up and he said okay you know what I feel like Stringer lied to me about this guy and so I'm going after Avon Barksdale stashes consistently now right and so mm-hmm. he brought his three man crew the two women who've been working with him since at least season okay. two and yeah. his new boyfriend mm-hmm. and they started hitting hitting Barksdale stashes and then the people okay. were telling him like oh, okay you know they're saying like oh Barksdale stashes man they're really kind of up armoring and they're really like you know they're really on, on high alert for us and stuff and so why don't we hit some other stashes he's like no we're, we're going after Barksdale and stuff and mm-hmm. like, okay and then they have the shootout and one of the girls gets hit in the forehead and yep. dies in the street. And Omar's all busted up about that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, I'm remembering that now. Okay. So that that's kind of where Omar is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That situation seems like it's headed for something with him and Brother Mazone and and uh, Stringer. So I guess we'll see. So, But Stringer's off into the real estate business now. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I may actually not be that far yet, but okay. uh, yeah. But I've you know, like I said, I've seen him before, so right. yeah. he's he's yeah. He's moving to another level. He wants to, you know, obviously cut down on the violence and stuff and uh, you know, move himself into a more legitimate position while still, you know, maintaining the business and stuff that's that's happening right now. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh it's it's fascinating. So uh, what about the police? Oh, okay. Well, there was one conflict that I was going to ask you about. So I don't know if you're to this episode yet, but Lester Freeman and uh, McNulty had a falling out or an argument or something. I didn't really understand what they were arguing about because I know McNulty's still he's still chasing. I thought they were all working towards the same thing, but apparently Lester Freeman thinks he's not or something. Oh yeah. They're supposed to go on like a, a new drug dealer named Kintel Williams or something, Williamson or something like that. Okay, yeah, but he's still he's obsessed with the Barksdale crew. Yeah. I see. Well, I think at the end of season two, he and Kima got some photos of Prop Joe meeting with Stringer and Prop Joe's people and Stringer's people working together on the corners and stuff. And so that was kind of laying the groundwork for what was going to be happening at the beginning of season three, right? Mm-hmm. And so they felt like, and they, they showed that to Daniels, right? And so Daniel, and so that's kind of like they gave him a new case. They said, okay, this is a, we can go back on this guy that we didn't arrest the first time. We've already got some evidence of what he's up to, what's going on with these guys right now. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I just think McNulty really wanted to work this case, and now, you know, the unit is being reassigned to something else to help another, you know, police commissioner somewhere else or something like that, or right. one of the higher ups in the because that guy thanked uh, Daniels and said, hey, he's coming to work for me for a month. It's, somebody's doing me a favor here or something, mm-hmm. but. Jimmy McNulty doesn't like that, right? And mm-hmm. Jimmy McNulty perpetually has a problem with authority, even you know, even sure. though you know Daniel's got him off the boat and got him back to this unit, and got him back to investigating drugs and homicides and all the stuff that he's good at. So mm-hmm. yeah, so that so and and Freeman is like you know he's a 
I think he appreciates some aspects of Jimmy McNulty, but I think he's getting increasingly pissed off at him because he realizes that the the you know the problem with authority is a perpetual thing with him and you know freeman basically respects daniels and mcnulty doesn't respect anybody who's an authority basically so Mm -hmm. i did like when he turned to akima and he's like i'm surprised at you girl (laughs) aren't we all surprised at kima right now i know not the least of which is her uh, her wife (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah they're having a baby oh yeah yeah, what, what do you think about Kima? I think in this uh, episode three or so, she's drinking with Jimmy McNulty and talking about, like, what's it like when you don't go home? And he's like, well, let me tell you. something. <laughs> just like, like preparing God, you for a life of uh, spousal disappointment <laughs> down the road. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, speaking of which, on a separate note, uh, I'm now watching another show. This is what I've been doing instead of uh, binging The Wire. Is Ash and I are watching a show called The Affair, and uh, okay. it's kind of funny because uh, the guy that plays McNulty is it Dominic Ward? Is that guy's name? Okay. Yeah, he's playing an American again, but uh, he <laughs> he's like the lead character in the show, and his father-in-law in the show is. Oh, Rawls. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, he, and, and it's, they still have the exact same dynamic they do here. <laughs> yeah, I think Rawls is his father-in-law on the wire. Basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, it's been kind yeah. of a funny parallel to switch back and forth between the two shows. He, big old cheater in both of them, obviously, because the show is called The Affair. So, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he just kind of looks like a guy that's uh, down to, you know, <laughs> down to get it yeah, in. He has, that, I guess, that rackish charm. <laughs> exactly. What, what did you think about the scene where he, he, you know, gets too drunk and he crashes his car after fighting with a bar owner at his regular <laughs> bar and stuff? And then he takes his car and crashes again just to figure out how he did it the first time and then he goes to a restaurant that's open really late and then he takes the waitress home and bangs her and stuff and he's bleeding from his hand and stuff. And then he wakes up the next day he's like, what have I done? And that was, of course, after his wife told him they weren't getting back together. So he was on a kind of kind of a downward spiral there and he was still on the boat at that point, right? Yeah, see, yeah I'm pretty sure that was the, the final straw where people appealed to Daniels to bring him back mm-hmm. to, the, to the unit. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think about the horse trading that goes on with the uh, the higher ups in the police department? They're like, they're always like doing favors for people or saying they owe something to somebody or you know, if you do me this favor, I'll, you'll you know you'll have weight with me or something or you'll you'll have pull with me or something like that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that that goes on. Well, even in the streets, that kind of goes on too because. Remember when Bunk is going through that lineup of people that they're hauling away and being like, this is your get-out-of-jail-free card. I can make most misdemeanors disappear. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I yeah, think there's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and of course they've got him on this thing where they just want him to find this, this officer's gun who was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, what, what, Officer Doberman or something like that? Doseman, what, what was his name? Right, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't really get his character. Like, um, I don't know. He had like two or three scenes before he was shot and killed, basically. And 
I don't know. I, I his acting. I don't know. Something weird about him. He seemed like he was too Wait, hard or who something. Who are we? Who are we talking about now? He was. He was hanging. He was a police officer who was hanging out with uh, Carver and uh, and and Herc and stuff. And he was kind of a shaggy dude, a little skinny. They were at the movies and they bumped into uh, Brody and his his guys Poot and them. And then like. Uh, Herc and Carver were sitting there talking to him. They weren't saying anything. He was talking to them like, oh, you guys go to the movies, huh? Mm-hmm. When you're not out there busting our heads on the street, you're like, you're here at the movies. Yeah. They're, like, they're just like dumbfounded to see these people at the movies in their social life. <laughs> duty. And, and like they both got their girlfriends there with them. And, right. Like, um, and then Dozeman comes out of the movie theater with a black woman and stuff. And oh, yeah. He's like, okay. Problem here? Yeah, and then after that, of course, when Carver got, he, he like basically made her commit. Okay, what did he say? He said, "You can have sex with anybody, any girl you want, any the hottest woman in the world, whoever you want." He's like, "Oh, definitely the Olsen twins, Mary Kate and Ashley and stuff." And he's like, "Okay, but you got to do one guy." And he's like, <laughs> and it goes on for like an episode or two where he's right. like, "But does it have to be a guy?" And he's like, "You know, am I pitching or am I catching? What's going on?" <laughs> and finally, he admits one. And, and Carver seems to take it in stride in like a very mature way, but then like the, the Dozeman guy or something like teases him about it later, and you know, Herc realizes that that Carver has been telling people what he said or something. Yeah. And then like the next episode after that or something, or the, a few scenes later, the other guy got gets killed in a, or I don't know if he's killed or if he's you know just gravely. I'm pretty sure he was killed. I don't know. Maybe he was gravely wounded or maybe he died. I can't remember. But he, you know, and then. I don't know. It just, his character had made a strange impression on me. I didn't really get his character yet. Yeah. I don't really understand his purpose in the, uh, in the whole deal. So, hmm. but yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Herc and Carver, uh, Kima comes back to visit them at their new posting in the, I guess, I think they're in the West side now or something. And, and you can tell they've basically forgotten every aspect of smart policing that they've ever learned. And they're just like, we're just knocking heads out here. And she's like, you, you know better. He's like, the Western District way. And this other guy, like, fist bumps him and stuff. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Herc and Carver, like, I mean, Carver's a little smarter, but, like, they're both incorrigible, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Take much to bump them off the straight and narrow path. Yeah. I think I mentioned that first scene where we see them chasing down the kid through the alley where he's oh, playing yeah. the shaft theme. I just love yeah. that scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dude, who he's is the man? man. He's, he's a complicated man, and only his woman can understand. Him. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is, it's not her. No, like, I don't think he. Well, Very uncomplicated man. man. Not a complicated man. <laughs> <laughs> and they, I think, in that scene also, they said like, okay, and Carver says, like, okay, no matter what, there's going to be one little dude who jumps up and runs, but we do not chase him. And then they're they're shaking everybody down. And the kid jumps up and runs. And they're like, "Let him go! Let him go!" And he picks up a book bag. And I'm like, is, "Is that the stash?" And they start chasing him. And like, you know, that was exactly what you said you were not going to do. Well, and also that wasn't even the stash, right? Because don't they just like show someone else just calmly walking off with it, like right after that guy leaves? <laughs> yeah, he he knew what the right thing to do was in that scene. But, you know, <laughs> the, the the bait was too tempting, and they they took the bait anyway. So it's kind of let me yeah. at him. Let me at him. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the story of Kirk and Carver here, I think. Yeah. All right. What do you think? What do you think of Presbelewski? Because I remember at the beginning, you pretty much had said he was kind of irredeemable and stuff. But he's, you know, he's not a violent person at this point. As far as mm-hmm. we can tell, he's not abusing suspects. He's 
a smart guy who's basically fallen under Freeman's wing and is, you know, doing the the in-office stuff. He does the paperwork. He does the paper trail. Mm-hmm. He does the listening. He does, you know, the computer work. What, what do you think of this guy at this point? I mean, I think he's definitely uh, had some uh, development in his character, that's for sure. Um, I'm still not sure he should have a gun, necessarily. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I do appreciate that he has found his niche. You know, he's, he's on the uh, the office side, the uh, forensic accounting, the, the bookkeeping uh, investigations side of things. And he's, that seems to suit his, uh, you know, because he's doing the puzzles or whatever when they show him first, kind of relegated back to the office and that kind of works with his mind uh, the way it is anyway so yeah yeah I mean it's it's good to see him uh, you know make that transition it would have been nice if he could have made that transition before he put that kid's eye out of course but um, you yeah. Know. yeah yeah he has an arc as you said so yeah no I, I think when he punched his father-in-law out at the was at the end of season two there mm-hmm. yeah I think that was kind of a, a good moment for him because it kind of showed him uh, kind of some he's kind of rejected the the old ways, how he used to be, and, you know, so. Yeah. Kind of becoming his own person. He's still lashing out in an immature way, but, yeah, I mean... If he, if I think if he, if he, if he had abandoned the unit that his his, his father-in-law had put together mm-hmm. and put him on, uh, you know, I think his future would have been pretty set. He would have been back to regular, you know, yep. stupid policing, trying to climb the ladder, not being qualified for the positions he was going to be getting on account of who he knew. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so I think, uh, and then you know, and then later they, you know, he, uh, Rawls or no, no, not Rawls. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Polish guy, his father-in-law. Oh God, why can't I think of his name? Valchek. Mm-hmm. Steve Valchek, I think. Mm-hmm. He basically he he has Daniels in his office, and he tells him he he writes an apology and he sends that apology uh, to everybody in the room who saw that punch, and he tells them that it was a you know it was a, a bullshit punch that any real police would have uh, uh, beat his ass over, <laughs> except for the fact that I've got to consider my daughter's feelings and, and stuff. And he, he gives that to everybody, and then he comes in and he tells me the same thing later or something. He's like, "That's fine, sure, we'll do that." And it's like, "Okay, okay, he's he's okay now, basically." Yeah, exactly. Although, right. I can't imagine Thanksgiving dinner is going to be much fun next year. Yeah, I can't imagine it was much fun before, but it's probably going to be intolerable now. <laughs> yeah. So, I you know I don't know that we've seen Valchek's daughter, but one hopes that she is foxy as hell, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like she better be for the amount of shit that this guy puts up with. with his oh yeah. Well, I mean, he was ready to, what, prosecute him over or punching him right before then? And he's like, but think of your daughter. Like, wasn't what's his name was like, think of your daughter. And he's like, I told her never to marry him anyway. And it's like, wow, dude. Like, well, she still is married to him, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I think both of those guys have to have a lot of patience because they said, like, they had talked about the things that he'd done. They said, they said he shot up his own patrol car at first. They didn't know what that meant. Like I thought he had like a psychotic break or something. And then they said, no, no, he shot up his car and then he called it in like he was under sniper fire, <laughs> which I didn't understand how they could possibly think that that he was going to think that that was going to play out because I don't know, you know, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you, you, I mean, you, if a police officer comes up under sniper fire, I have a feeling that the police are going to, 
investigate the hell out of that scene, and it's going to take about five seconds to figure out that the bullet holes are coming from his own gun. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. So I, I don't know how he thought, and it's, you know, I don't know. I don't, we we did we weren't there, we don't know what happened, but it seemed like a remarkably stupid thing, and I'm surprised that Valchek, you know, stuck up for him after that. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, even though he's in son-in-law, you might say, dude, you're done as a police officer, like, you need to go into some other business because this is not for you or something. Yeah. He, he didn't. He kept protecting him. So you know, mm-hmm. kind of a kind of a codependent relationship there to some degree, mm-hmm. or something. They they're bad for each other, but they both benefit from each other in some ways or help each other out sometimes. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, what about uh, Daniels and his wife and uh, the lawyer? Okay. Well, that was another question I have. So they show. At the beginning of that season where now she's running for that one person's seat on the city council, right? Yeah, Renetta right. uh, Eunice or something. Mm-hmm. I forget her name exactly. And Yunetta, Yunetta, yeah. I think Yunetta's on the yes. council or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's going to run for her seat. Mm-hmm. But Yunetta is on the mayor's team, basically. And he said in the last episode he values loyalty and he's not going to, he's not going to, you know, get rid of Burrell, Burrell or anybody who's been loyal to him. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, but anyway, the people are over at the house and they're talking about her running and he's mm-hmm. like, he says, I'll be upstairs. And then he goes and like, like lays down in the hallway and then waits for them to leave and then actually leaves. So was, he's not living yeah. there anymore. Are they separated or divorced or something? Yeah. Or, huh. Yeah. They're, they're separated, I think. Um, and he's, yeah, not living at home, but yeah, he comes home, you know, Hmm. in his police uniform, uh, you know, kisses his wife on the cheek, uh, excuses himself, but, you know, puts on the show for these people who are, you know, obviously in the political machine of the Baltimore Democratic uh, Party. And uh, he goes and sleeps on a couch, I think, and then she comes and gets them when they're gone. And, you know, obviously they, they don't hate each other, but the marriage is over, basically, right? And, like... I think the thing that I like, one thing I really like about this show is that it really treats the audience like grown-ups. Like, other shows would show you, like, ten episodes of them arguing and bitching and moaning and fighting and stuff. But, like, this show, it's like, they're not together anymore. Okay, deal with that. And they don't tell you why, but you kind of know why, because you know these characters so well. She's got her eyes set, she's got her sight set high. She's extremely ambitious. The thing that she said that she liked about her husband when she first met him was that he was so ambitious and he doesn't seem to be that anymore. He's not going to go be a lawyer. He's satisfied with this unit that he gets to run now. And his mm-hmm. wife is, you know, that's not what she signed up for in the marriage, I guess. And so it didn't work out or whatever. So, mm-hmm. but you know, that that's just presented as a reality at the beginning of season three and there's no explanation, but you kind of, you know, you can understand it. Be- See, the thing is the story comes from character, right? Which is something that walking dead, for example, I use it as the bad example, the bad counter example every time, but they just don't get that. You know, the characters are slaves to the story, right? If we need a character to do something totally out of character in this scene so that we can propel the story forward, we'll do that. But in The Wire, it's like characters almost always act within within character. And you can understand chunks of the story that are not even shown just because you know the characters and which side, you know, how they're going to react to each other, how they're interacting and stuff. And when something happens and there's no explanation, you kind of already know why it happened, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Because you know these characters so well. And and his wife is not even within the top 25 characters, I would say, right? I mean, right. Like, she's not one of the major characters, but and this is such an ensemble cast, but, like, there's such... I mean, all the characters are so... Uh, specific, well written, um, mm-hmm. you know, fully fleshed out in an economic fashion, and the scenes they do get—it's uh, just something I really appreciate about the show, I guess. Well, it's that old thing of you know the best way to tell a story is to show and not tell, you know, and that's really mm-hmm. what they're doing here. And you know, I kind of felt like again, you know, not as much as with like the basketball scene, like we were talking about from the first uh, season, but I did kind of feel a little disoriented when I saw that scene where he's, you know obviously not living there and i'm like i i meant it more like i was like oh did i did i somehow miss a scene like earlier last season that i that was supposed to see but then i just realized like what you're saying like it's and i don't feel disoriented by that once i know that's how the show operates but like you know they they trust the audience enough to know that you can kind of sort out why this happened and you know we don't need to show you every little bump bump along the way to to get you there so Mm -hmm. yeah all right. So, what what do you think of Bunny, though? Um, we may have talked about him briefly. He's he's going to these Comstat meetings where you know his 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 compatriots are being bitched out, fired, you know, demoted, you know, just raked over the coals and stuff for not having their stats down. The government has set like I think the government is the governor is or the mayor has set an order that. That you know, he at first he said like, uh, uh, "What do you what do you say like murders don't go over two fifty this year or something?" Well, well, they're already at two thirty two right now or something, and mm-hmm. you know the beginning of summer or something. And he's like, "Okay, what do you say two seventy five? And you know they're like, "Okay, yeah, we'll hold it at two seventy five And I, I thought it was a brilliant thing in that same episode where he is the, the mayor. The, the 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 mayor has set this lofty goal of keeping the murder at a certain level, which is obviously not something that the police department can strictly guarantee. Um, you know, they put all this pressure on the, 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 uh, on the police department to, to, you know, to keep things down, keep the felony stats down and, you know, downgrade crimes to lower level crimes so that it doesn't look as bad. Mm-hmm. And in that same episode, what I love is that you've got Cuddy getting out of jail and you know nothing about Cuddy at this point, but you hear people talking about him. Like, he, yeah, he shot this guy down in the middle of the street, and he called the police and he said, I just shot a guy. Come get him or something. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> this guy is stone cold, and he's getting out of prison? Ooh, I wonder what that's going to do to the murder rate. <laughs> you know, you've got, <laughs> and you've got, like, you've got Omar about to declare war on the Barksdale drug stashes, which you know, you know, and you've got the Barksdale people bumping up against Marlowe and what's going to happen there, and you've got all this, like, kind of this foreboding, kind of looming stuff that you know, like, any one of these things, if it pops off in the wrong way, is going to, like, kill their murder stats for the year. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, there's just so much dramatic tension there and stuff, and, mm-hmm. and Bunny, you know, they tell him, like, everybody's massaging their stats and stuff and, like, uh, downgrading crimes and stuff, and Bunny says, no, just, you know, give them the right stats. Give them the stats absolutely correctly. Don't change anything. You know, it's bullshit. <laughs> and they're like, you're, you're fucking with us, right? A stripper's gonna come in here and she's gonna have the real stats, right? And he's like, nope, these are my stats. And they're like, you better figure it out. <laughs> and they give him, you know, a kind of a final warning here. Mm-hmm. And you've watched all of season four, or episode four, 
So have you seen, I mean, this, this, this one's called Amsterdam. So do you remember what, you know, the pertinence of Amsterdam is? Amsterdam, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Amsterdam, yeah. Because that one guy mispronounces it. Um, so I assume that he's talking about the area of vacant homes that Bunny wants to shuttle all the drug dealers to and make it into an open-air drug market where they don't interfere with each other. And it's kind of like yeah. a... You know, it's kind of like a gray area. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, what do, what do you think about that? Let's. I mean, we're, he's really bumping up against what, you know, I think people in all cities since, you know, the war on drugs has begun have been bumping into is that the war on drugs is an abject failure. Um, it has done nothing but lock people up and uh, exacerbate the problems that it's trying to fix. So, literally, there's no other solution other than to do something completely off the wall and radical, at least to these people, which would just to be, you know, look... It just rather than looking at drugs or drug addiction as a criminal act that has to be penalized out of existence, more treated as a fact of life that then requires treatment for the people that need it, uh, which is probably a more realistic way of looking at it, but is so out of the mainstream for you know what I mean for the for the people in this universe to think about. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, what did what do you think? Well, this is, I think I mentioned last time that this this experiment that he runs in this season is something that struck me as kind of like a kind of like a thought experiment. You know, it's it's in, in this show is so dynamic. I mean, it's so down to earth and real in a lot of ways. And this part struck me as pure utopian fantasy or something like. I mean, it, it comes across as you know not something that I can imagine police ever really doing, especially not high ranked police. I think the actor does a good job of portraying his just total exasperation with policing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, yeah, this aspect of the season struck me as a little bit unrealistic, but it still does. Uh, I think we'll see how it propels the the story and everything going forward, especially as it, as it intersects with the, you know, politicians and stuff and, and what they're trying to do and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, the mayor and Tommy Carchetti and, you know, all these people. Um, I, I'm not giving anything away to say that, you know, these things are going inter- to intersect in inter- interesting ways, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bubs and Johnny, uh, you know, the users and stuff, like the gangs, the police, uh, the politicians, just how this, how the, all this stuff intersects is just, you know, mm-hmm. what makes this TV show just a master class in, you know, just, you know, better than your average episodic, you know, NCIS or Criminal Minds or something like that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I can't even really talk on because I've only seen, I've seen like one or two episodes of each of those shows. I've never <laughs> watched them, so it's not my cup of tea. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if you look at what's been done in the war on drugs, quote unquote, I mean, they, they're, there's Hurricane Carver locking people up and, and throwing people on the ground and things never really improving and, you know, things only seeming to get worse. And, you know, we've, is, we've locked more people up in this country than anyone else.
else in the world, and yet these problems still exist. So, you know, I mean, I think I think Bunny is in a little bit of a he's you know he's going to get his pension in, in what a matter of months now. Um, he's already talking to what John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins or whatever about taking that security job. Um, you know, to get kind of a cushy you know kind of retirement uh, you know you know ease into retirement that way. Um, so yeah, I think he's just like oh all right we'll see we'll see what happens I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think um, and I, I think there was a there was a preacher that he talked to at one point. Do you remember that guy at all? Was this where they went and had the community meeting and he was honest with people, or is this a different thing? Uh, I think it would have been a different guy. Um, I don't remember if it was him talking. I think it was him talking to him. Maybe it was somebody else. But um, from what I remember from watching documentaries about the show or something, that guy was actually, and you'll, you'll figure out who he is. He's a pretty soft-spoken guy, a little bit skinny, older guy. Um, um, yeah, black preacher guy. And he... Apparently, according to documentaries, he was he was basically like the Avon Barksdale's type of person in the eighties. He wasn't mm-hmm. Avon Barksdale himself, I don't believe, but he was uh, he was a pretty big drug mover himself, and you know had lots of money, and you know people got killed or whatever. And uh, you know it's so bizarre to see him in this show when you when you know that about him that he's this kind of just this peaceful, community civic minded kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's interesting also, he's a local, he's, he's a non-actor, he's a Baltimore native and he just fits right in. I mean, another thing about the show is that, you know, we always talk about professional actors and how, how good they should be and stuff. And it's just amazing how many people in the show are not professional actors, but they fit right in with the professional actors. And, you know, you could even have certain complaints about some of the professional actors and, and stuff as far as like. I think I mentioned McNulty's accent slipping through at times and stuff like that kind of breaking the fourth wall for me a little bit. But um, but you've got people like this whose who's only credential is that, you know, David Simon knew who he was because he was a big player back in the 80s and 90s or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and now he's an older guy and he's he's got a part in the show. And if you didn't know that detail about his, his actual history, you'd just think he's an ordinary actor on the show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Who else? Uh, I know there's some characters I don't know yet, like Snoop. I think was a real Baltimore person. But mm-hmm. uh, is there anybody else I've seen on the show that was just somebody that just lived there? Um, well, oh, oh, there's one. I just remembered one of the things um, from the second season that I wanted to mention because we mentioned you know people from Baltimore who show up in the show. And I can't think of too many, although I'm sure there's quite a few sprinkled throughout. But um, David Simon made a cameo in the episode where they, you know, where Valchek goes into the Union Hall and arrests, uh, arrests, uh, uh, what's his name, um, uh, Sabatka, mm-hmm. Frank Sabatka, uh, you know, the day after his son's been arrested for murder, double murder. And he's on the phone trying to figure that out. And then, you know, this asshole Valchek comes in and, you know, arrests him in horse face and puts them both in handcuffs and marches them out front. Mm-hmm. And there's one reporter who's shouting questions at Sabatka while he's being marched outside. Okay. I forget what he's shouting at him, but um, that was that was David Simon. I was like, oh, okay, that, that's kind of cool. They're just like letting him re- relive his, his old days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, 
uh, a pesky uh, journalist shouting questions at somebody who's having the worst day of their life. <laughs> so, so that was that was kind of a fun moment. Um, That's funny. I, I'm not sure if I noticed that the second time I watched it. I probably did, but I forgot about it. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm. You know, the thing is, I'm not sure who the Baltimore natives versus the professional actors in the show are. Totally. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of Baltimore natives in the show that just you know have parts here and there. But I think it's I think it's brilliant how seamlessly they're interwoven into the story. You know, you really. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't know who's professional necessarily, aside from some of the main guys who have you know done other things and stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think that uh, the guy that was in season two when he was uh, in prison with D and he was the Great Gatsby, the teacher. I guess that's like a mm-hmm. famous novelist. He wrote uh, Clockers okay. and a couple other. Oh, oh really? Mm-hmm. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, Richard Price is his name, I guess. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, I, I yeah, I'm trying to think what else to say about the show right now. I, it's kind of a weird thing to be stopping like four episodes in. I mean, it worked out well that we're both in the same place, but we're kind of like, you know, we're still in that rising action, and I have a feeling as we watch, you know, episodes going forward this week, and you know, probably by next weekend we can record again, and you know, we'll have a lot to talk about again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so well, I, I could probably get through the rest of the season by next weekend. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, try to make that our target here. Yeah, yeah, and 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 believe me, like as this season progresses, I think it's gonna, you know, it's gonna hit a fever pitch and stuff where you're gonna be wanting to watch the next episode, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the beginnings of the seasons are often a little bit slow but um yeah it's not as bad as it was in the first season for me because i'm already invested in the characters or whatever and, and you're right there is a lot of carryover from season to season with like the characters not they don't necessarily go away unless there's a reason for them to like you said so i'm kind of already invested in what's going on rather than just starting cold you know so yeah i i i, I do like that that amount of carryover i think it's great that they you know stories get picked up again that you know that that you know have kind of anchored you in the season before they pick them up in the next season so you're emotionally invested before you really know what the main gist of the story is going to be for the season but mm-hmm. they, uh, this, i mean this show is just like i mean it's like a perfect tv show mm-hmm. i just you know it's just it it works on every level it's 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 operating at levels that you know you're not even really conscious of until you stop and think about them. Mm-hmm. It's you know like we've said it's interwoven professional and non-professional actors. It's got a huge cast and yet you know intimate you know intimately almost everyone in the show on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't you, you may not know everything. You don't know everything about their life, but you know you know, you know, some basic things about their character, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's enough to propel you. I mean, the, the story is character driven rather than plot driven or story driven. It's, you know, but it, and yet it's telling a story that is epic in scope, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's operating on the small level, the street level, the, the personal level. It's operating on the, you know, the, the or examining an organization from the organizational level. It's, it's looking at things from the whole city level to some degree, mm. although we're kind of isolated in the parts of the city that we're seeing. But, you know, we're going to see different parts with the politicians and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I found yeah. I found one more. I was just looking on online. Uh, apparently, the real the inspiration for Jay Landsman uh, is mm. Mello, that the guy that plays him. 
that's the real landsman. The guy who plays who? Dennis Mello. Uh, he's the acting oh, yeah. commander he's of the Western District, two, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he, yeah, it's it's bizarre because his character seems like such a kind of like a millhousey kind of guy in the show, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't imagine he's flattered <laughs> to look at that fat Jay Landsman who's like a mean, just disgusting pig. Oh uh, yeah, I, I think you're right about Landsman and uh, Rawls. Though I, I've I've stood, they've started to grow on me ever so slightly, kind of like a fungus. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're funny. I mean, well, especially when you realize that, like, because I mean, I think when I first started watching the show, I was viewing the the show more through like, oh, Jimmy McNulty, the protagonist. You know what I mean? But now that mm-hmm. I've kind of gotten a wider view of the show, it's like I'm able to place them more in the larger scheme of things. So. Yeah, I mean they're both still absolutely miserable demons that you'd never want to work with. I, I think, like, I mean, I, I think both the Sopranos and The Wire have, with these two characters in this show, I think they've created an image of kind of hell, you know, workplace hell with these, you know, these people who, uh, you know, I don't know, just they're they're just disgusting. Um, they'll ruin your life. They don't care. They'll fire you or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have the correct, uh, incentives lined up with their, their job. And yet that's what makes them effective at what their job is, which is to keep the clearance rate high for murders. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think in the Sopranos, for me, those two characters were, uh, Silvio Dante and, mm-hmm. uh, Polly Walnuts. Oh Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Because at a certain point, these two just become almost caricatures of the Italian gangster. These just kind of stupid, craven, uh, small-minded, violent, you know, petty thugs, basically, who have risen up to a, you know, a pretty high level within their organization. But, you know, sometimes, like, I don't know, when you see them coming, you know, you're just like, oh, God, it's these guys, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think you get the same thing with Rawls and uh, Landsman. It's just like, oh, God, it's these guys, these, these demons that, you know, occupy this ring of hell that these guys happen to, you know, be existing in right mm-hmm. now, so... Right. Well, and they almost sort of have to exist in that in this in the roles that they're in because I feel like any time they move outside of those roles, they they can't stand it. Like when uh, remember on The Sopranos when uh, Polly or not Polly uh, uh, Sylvia briefly while Tony's like in the hospital or whatever becomes the boss, and then like mm-hmm. <laughs> you see him like later in the episode being like a heart carried out on a stretcher like like Days Inhaler and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's getting dressed up in the morning and stuff. Yeah. These guys got to respect me or something. It's like, he's like, like, you can do it. You've been waiting for this. <laughs> like, almost has a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah, that was... They, yeah, they had their roles in the organization, and they were, mm-hmm. you know, they had grown into them, but... Exactly. But, yeah. I mean, sometimes, yeah, it was, I mean... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, they... They were like a... I don't know. They were like a caricature of a certain kind of character. They were real people too. I mean, that's, that's the thing also, I think with both of these shows, these, these characters can be very archetypical, archetypal characters. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet still have, you know, depths of personality and, you know, home life that we get to see sometimes. And, uh, you know, more depth, you know, more depth than the protagonist on most shows ever get. Right. 
Like, mm-hmm. and yet they're also they're just these, you know, sometimes they come in as the comic relief, right? They're just like, they're just there to, to oh God, here are these guys again. Oh, here's the stupid jokes. Here's the, you know, the, the pestering, the bullying or whatever. And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. The, I mean, the show, uh, yeah, the show gives its characters these different levels that they're operating at at different times. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. It's it's just brilliant. So yeah, it also may not um, surprise also, you to uh, learn that Slim Charles was a Baltimore native. <laughs> yeah, when you mentioned that question about people who might be Baltimore natives, his he he came up for me too, but I wasn't really sure. But yeah, yeah, Slim Charles is a character. Also, um, we're gonna see you know different things from him um oh great i just saw a spoiler okay i gotta start i gotta stop googling you better, you better damn well be careful bob <laughs> what was the spoiler tell me what was the spoiler at a certain point cheese gets got i i i sort of i sort of expected him to get got at some point so. well he'll he'll get got probably a little bit later than you expect we still got a lot of time with him oh really okay happened. And, you know, he's, he's going to have an arc, right? Like I keep, it's going to get annoying. I keep saying this character has an arc, but mm-hmm. a lot of them do. You know? Yeah. And, you know, um, in the fourth season, we're going to, we're going to meet some other characters who, you know, put cheese in an even different light, I would say. Hmm. So, yeah. Oh, I did like at the beginning of the second season when we see uh, who is Proposition Joe's nephew or whatever. That's That's cheese. Is that is that no? It's some other guy that's like he can't stop talking on the phone about the. Okay, that's Dracula. Dracula. (laughs) I love when they're sitting in the car and they're like, "Yeah, man, I got the cocaine." (laughs) (laughs) He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "I got the stuff." He's like, "What you talking about?" He's like, "That thing." He's like, "He's like, huh?" He's like, "Drugs, motherfucker." <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> that was yeah. That was that was pretty great. I mean, and they're like, we want him to get promoted, or we want him to get pushed out of the way so somebody else gets promoted. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, or they, so they were trying to push somebody else out so that that guy would get promoted so they could <laughs> stay on his. But yeah, it's I don't know. Prop Joe is a smart guy, and he you know people like that. He doesn't know exactly what they're saying on the phone, but he probably tends to know that they talk too much on the phone. And he, mm-hmm. he doesn't really tend to keep those, to promote those people too much. So. <laughs> I did like I when uh, we'll, Nikki and, and him yeah. came to Prop Joe that one time uh, because of uh, Ziggy's car or whatever. He said, "If, if oh yeah, princess, yeah." And uh, <laughs> he was like, "If you're if you're a man here, if you weren't friends with my man here, you would have been some cadaverous." <laughs> Cadaverous is a new word I learned from that. I knew the word cadaver, but I'd never heard it as like an adjective. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The vocabulary. I mean, and that's another thing is like, I mean, you know, people. A lot of people probably think like people, people in the hood can't talk right. They're not educated or something. But like, you know, like I mean, you see an, an educated side of some of these folks, like Crap Joe. I mean. He, he can. He's a he's a good talker, right? He's he's good with words, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the scene, for example, I think when Omar was getting ready to go testify in court, and like the the, the jail bondsman or the jail guard or somebody there is doing like a crossword puzzle. He's like, what's the what's the word for? You know, Mars, the god of war, but Mars doesn't fit. He's like, oh, that's Ares or something. Mm-hmm. Greek or something. He's like, oh wow, how'd you know that? He's like, well, I like those stories back in school. And, you know, you see that, you know, these people may not be 
a lot of them may not be educated fully in the way that, you know, we would expect people to be educated, but they, you know, they have retained things and they have, you know, some people have various abilities and stuff as far as, you know, Prop Joe just has a way with words. Mm -hmm. Prop Joe also has a really interesting accent sometimes. Like sometimes his vowels are really weird. He's like, you, right? He's like, his (laughs) use or something get really weird or kind of, I I don't know. You know, I'm an English teacher and yet I can't describe what exactly he's doing with his vowels. He's doing something thing with his accent. Maybe it's like some East Coast mini dialect from some area or something, yeah. It's pretty interesting. I did like at a Oh, it was D. I think it was D's funeral when, uh, when he, Prop Joe was talking to Stringer, and uh, Stringer's like, "As much as I love hearing you talk, you have a way with words. Would you just get to the point?" <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, with respect to the fact that you have a way with words or something like that. It's like, but yeah, yeah. That, remember that song, Jesus on the Main Line? Uh huh. Tell him what you want, Lord. Yep. That was a that was a song to be played at a person's funeral, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that they kind of had that the, the the Sopranos thing where you know the person's dead, the family's there crying and everything, and yet the person, the people who ordered the murder, are also there. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, people don't necessarily know that, but you know they're also in the grieving group or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So also. Another thing I was going to mention, sorry, I thought we were wrapping up like a half hour ago. Show just has <laughs> so what, that's what happens with this show, man. McNulty <laughs> mm-hmm. looking into the D'Angelo Barksdale suicide slash murder in the in jail library. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's approached his, his ex, his ex, his baby mama there and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he came to her and he said, I don't think you're, you're, yeah, I don't think, I don't think D'Angelo killed himself. And she's like, She's pretty dismissive of him, right, and stuff, but mm-hmm. I think there's going to be, you know, there's going to be some more with that, perhaps, obviously. You know, Jimmy McNulty is looking to make this a murder, which nobody wants any more murders. But he's like, well, it's actually in the county. It's not ours, but, you know, bunk, and nobody nobody has any appetite for, you know, turning something that's been satisfactorily adjudicated by the criminal justice system into a, an open murder. Yeah. I mean, they had just had so much trouble clearing those 14 murders last season. They don't need another headache. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But D'Angelo, you know, D'Angelo's ghost is still out there in this show, basically Mm -hmm. in, in a way, in a manner of speaking, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, Avon Stringer, Avon's got a bail hearing coming up or something. He's got a, he's got a parole hearing coming up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's told Stringer, like, you're in control while I'm in here. But when I get back, you know, we're going to run things my way again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, yeah, it looks like he's going to get out, right? Cause of that thing. I mean, despite the best efforts of, uh, what's the woman state's attorney woman, Avon, Avon has got some plans. He's got that, that slimy fucking lawyer of his, uh, I can't remember his name. Um, and yeah, we'll see what, we'll see how his parole hearing goes and stuff and how much help he's been to, you know, the state or not and so forth. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a, there's, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. stuff still coming. One thing I got, I gotta say about Daniels and his wife, 
is like, I mean, Daniel is a, he's a fine motherfucker, right? I mean, like, he's ripped as hell. Like, there's been a couple scenes where he's walking around his apartment or his house with his shirt off, and he's just like, the abs is going on and everything, the pecs and all that. Oh, yeah, his, his, like, his pecs have pecs, you know? <laughs> yeah, this, this guy is like, you know, this is not the role he was necessarily auditioning for. I, I almost don't buy him as a kind of a police higher up because the rest of them are all pudgy and shit. But, but like, I don't. I think Mar is it Marla Daniels. I think is his wife. I forget her name exactly, but like, mm -hmm. I almost don't buy them together just because she is so frumpy, and this guy is like, you know, he's still in the gym, apparently. <laughs> you know. Well, I I kind of so, get the idea that they were like either college or high school sweethearts or something. Yeah. You know, there's one of those long term couples that you know have been together for like was, decades. College. Yeah. Yeah. I feel right. like they met in college. Mm -hmm. And 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 see that's. Exactly. See, that's the thing about this show. We we know these characters. We have such a good sense of these characters that we both get that sense. And nowhere in this show is it even hinted at that that's the case, or even, or let alone made explicit. And yet we're both like, yeah, these were college sweethearts who, you know, you know, they they fell in with each other at that point. They've been together since then. They're starting to diverge in some ways. And they're not really a good match in a way. So, but yeah, that was the thing. I, uh, but yeah, when I see them together in scenes and stuff, I just, uh, because like this guy could obviously, you know, he could get pretty much anything he wanted. And like, I'm saying I wouldn't even be interested in the wife. And it's like, uh, you know, got you questioning everything about yourself over here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't been to the gym in a couple of months, so <laughs> Uh, rest in peace, uh, Coco the Gorilla and Charles Krauthammer today, I guess, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Charles Krauthammer, you know, I'm sure I can get a lot of shit for, you know, feeling bad that the guy's dead, but, you know, he's a Republican stuff, but he didn't strike me as the Trumpist type. No, I think he was he one of like the really early ones to, on the right to call him out. So. Yeah. I mean, he, he strikes me more as kind of like a, like one of those. Uh, what do they call them? The, oh God! What, what, what the Bushes? What were they? They were neoconservatives. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I struck. He struck me more as a neocon, which was, uh, you know, a nasty breed of conservative in its own right. But I don't know. You know, any port in a storm at this point. Maybe, <laughs> I mean, and I, I, I think I read a profile of him like six months ago, even before he announced he was going to die and stuff. That. Like, apparently, like, he was in law school or something, like, in the 70s, and he was doing swimming lessons or something. Yeah. He was on the swim team, and he, he dove into the shallow end, and he hit his head, and he was basically paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. Mm. And that was the weird thing, because, like, he's one of those guys you see on MSNBC or whatever all the time. And I never knew that the dude was paralyzed. Yeah, I didn't like, know that either. TV, I never noticed that. And mm. then I read that article. I was like, holy shit, wow. That's, you know... That's, I mean, that's obviously tragic. Um, and, but I mean, it's just amazing that they did such a good job, I guess, on TV of, you know, not telegraphing that or not making it an issue, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Coco the gorilla really hits hard. I mean, my God, I've been knowing about Coco since the eighties. Like, sure. It, it amazed me, you know, Coco, People say, oh, it's abuse, it's animal abuse. They fed her shitty foods, and she was way overweight for what a gorilla was supposed to be. I didn't even know we were fat shaming Coco the gorilla. <laughs> well, I think we're, you know, shaming her keepers. Oh, okay. It's like, 
you know, whatever, okay? <laughs> you, you know, there's people who were killing gorillas in the 80s and stuff in, in the Congo and chopping off their hands to make, like, ashtrays out of or some shit, mm-hmm. you know? It's like a lot of gorillas died a lot of ways. Coco may have not led the healthiest lifestyle, but she was one of us, right? Have we all lived the healthiest lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Nope. <laughs> right? Like, Coco... Uh, you know, and I know there's there to some degree there was some debate about how much Coco actually knew what she was communicating and how much of it was just kind of like people had trained her to do these certain things or something. I, I don't know exactly, but it seemed like she was a smart fucking gorilla and it seemed like she could communicate and it seemed like she often knew what she was saying and... Um, you know, it might be time to revisit the Wikipedia of Coco and just kind of get a little bit more background on exactly, mm-hmm. you know, like I saw some video earlier today on Facebook, of course, where she was saying like, uh, I love people. I love the earth. Uh, but I'm sad. Coco is sad. Why? Uh, people are stupid. Why people so stupid? Oh, why are people killing the earth? Please protect the earth people. And like, Okay, come on. To be fair, that does seem like something that somebody taught her to say. Like, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure Coco understands. I mean, she's probably. I don't know how. I mean, Coco must be amazed by all the stuff that people have, right? And the stuff that we can give her and stuff like that. But I'm not sure she understands the implications of what that has on the environment. I don't know. Maybe I'm underestimating her a little bit. But but obviously, I mean, Coco, she had ball, right? Uh-huh. She had the cat named Ball. Is that right? Yep. I think I remember from my childhood. And she, you know, she took care of the cat. She was a she was an animal who had pets. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. That's that's like that's right. I mean, like that's. I mean, we're all animals, basically. You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. We just said back in high school. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I mean. <laughs> Coco, you know, think about it. Coco was probably the animal in the world who had the best understanding of humans in a way and ability to interact and communicate with humans in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Of all the animals. And she was a link. She was a link between people and the natural kingdom, right? Sure. And she's gone now. And maybe, you know, maybe in 20 or 30 years we can train some other gorillas or something. Although I get the feeling that this is not even really an area of research that they're still going down necessarily. No, I'm pretty sure kind of, this is, this is the last of, of the... Uh... I don't know why it's fallen out of favor, you know? Mm-hmm. It took thousands of years. We domesticated dogs and cats, they say, cats have are only semi-domesticated and they domesticated themselves because they wanted our fucking mice and grain and stuff or whatever, but mm-hmm. not our grain, just the mice that come to the grain. But, um, mm-hmm. but the thing is, why are we not domesticating gorillas? I don't know. This I wonder, right? <laughs> Think about that. If we start now, in a, you know, in 50 to a hundred years, we could have, you know, I don't know, you know, think about it. Like Planet of the Apes type of stuff, right? Mm. Like, almost. Stuff, it's not going to be exactly like that. But. Yeah, look how well that turned out for the humans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it's like Terminator, you know? Everybody's always, you know, it's like, it's all doom and gloom. Like, everything goes wrong. 
probably won't go that bad. The robots will just be trying to advertise shit to us and sell us stuff and like, steal our elections. They're not going to, you know, blast us with a shotgun off the back of a motorcycle in the 1980s. <laughs> right, come on, Hollywood. Yeah. So, but I'm just saying, like, I mean, think about that, though. If we if we really had an aggressive uh, guerrilla, you know, communication training uh, thing, I, I think I saw a documentary one time about a male orangutan who was trained similarly in the 1970s, and he was like a college, he was on college campus and stuff, and he was well known by the other students there, and he could communicate, he could work, he earned money for his work, and then he bought himself shitty food. <laughs> Seems to be a common theme with these domesticated uh, great apes is that they want to eat our garbage. <laughs> they want to eat the sugar and the sweets and all this stuff that they're not supposed to eat, and then people complain about it later. But for some reason, he was like thought to be dangerous or something like that, and so eventually they took him away and put him in a zoo, and like then his, his trainers went and saw him at the zoo later, and he was just so depressed and stuff, and he would hardly communicate with them, even though he knew how and stuff and it was a real sad ending basically he didn't have the coco ending but um mm-hmm. i i don't know man i mean coco i feel like it was the 1980s i feel like i have memories of learning about coco in the 80s when i was you know under like probably seven years old and you know coco just always been out there she's been you know i don't know I haven't thought about her for a little while. I probably Wikipedia her two or three years ago or something just to see what the story was. But it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It affects me. Mm-hmm. Coco was an important figure. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm reading up on the criticism of the the work in there is kind of what you're saying. It's just like maybe they just may, she may have just mimicked the signs to get the food reward or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's an impressive feat. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I, you know, I wish I were like a sign language ex- expert so I could actually see what she was saying because they, you know, they always put the the, the translation at the bottom of the screen. They've got the subtitles for whatever Coco was saying. Right. Like, I don't really know that. I mean, she tapped her head. Does that mean humans are stupid? I, I, you say that. I, you know, I don't know. But I, you know. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating idea anyway, and yeah, I don't know why they haven't tried to do more of it. So, although there's always those like horses that can do math or whatever. So. Hmm. I don't know about that. They like stamp their feet a certain number of times, and I don't know. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, well, I mean, I think I mean every animal can do math on some level. True, so. true. Or maybe it's tic tac toe over there that I want. I have zero. I want one. I take it from you. Now I have one. You have zero. <laughs> I mean, every 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 animal can do that calculation. Yeah. Exactly. I saw a funny video on Facebook yesterday. What's up? These girls were like throwing food at a, at a, I don't know if it was a, like a macaque or a, it was one of those uh, apes that has a, the, the big ass or whatever and the hair around their face. Mm-hmm. And so he, he, he like charges the cage one point and like spooks the girls a little bit. And then he turns around and he goes back in the thing. And he, he grabs some shit on the ground, apparently, and he, he just comes back towards the cage and he just flings it like, whoop, 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 three times like, like a ninja with throwing stuff. And the girls start crying immediately. They've been hitting the face and the shirt with shit, and their dad's been hitting the shirt with shit. He's filming. And then he starts resting and coughing and stuff. He's like, oh, my God. And the girl's like, we're not having fun anymore. It, it was so funny. You got to like, look that video up if you can find it on YouTube. I will. 
Well, I probably ought to get going. My uh, my kids want lunch, so. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so we're we're aiming to finish season three by next week here and yep. record an episode. Yeah. Yeah. I I hope our audience is uh, following along with us and stuff and enjoying the show as much as we obviously are. All right. I'm I'm signing goodbye. <laughs> However you sign. <laughs> All right. Be good, Cha Cha. Signing off. All right. Yep. Rock over London. Rock on Chicago. <laughs> Mitsubishi, the word is getting around. <laughs> Can't see what If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. 
Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.